You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21, as we continue on in this series on the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your mother and father, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near into the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come to you by our Lord Jesus and we ask that you'd forgive us our sins, that our focus would be on Christ, that you, please God, would help us to be sanctified, that as the word of God brings conviction to our hearts for our sins, that we would learn to be sanctified, that you would teach us holiness, that people would be saved today, they'd be drawn to Jesus the Savior and that you would empower the preached word in Christ's name. Amen. So we are in the Ten Commandments this morning. And again, the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are the moral law of God, the natural law of God, the very constitution of nature itself. And because they are the constitution of nature itself, they have abiding authority. The authority of the Ten Commandments has not been lost with the first advent of Jesus Christ. This is confusion in the land when people start to think this way, but the authority of the Ten Commandments remains. And I have established that early on in this series. Last week, we finished 
three weeks on the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And honoring your father and your mother is the first commandment with a promise, and it is a commandment that leads to longevity of life in the land, and especially when groups of people do this, it leads to the flourishing, the building and the flourishing of nations. Now we are in the sixth commandment, and the sixth commandment is, you shall not murder, and it's found in verse 13. The sixth commandment, you shall not murder. I suspect this is probably, well, out of all of the commandments, I think this might be the one, with a few caveats, that is still assumed in our society. So I don't think that the nine other ones are assumed anymore. But this might be the one that is still assumed. However, even with that being said, as I'll demonstrate and as you likely know, there is still murder even that's celebrated in this world of ours and in the society and is even legal, authorized and celebrated by the state. And embedded within the sixth commandment is not just you shall not murder, but it is you shall love human life. And that is clearly not a given in our society at all. But I'll get into this text of Scripture, and I'm going to ask several questions of the text that I hope to answer this morning. Is you fall under the conviction of sin? In this sermon, please go to Jesus immediately. He is the great forgiver of sinners. He forgives all of your sins if you look to him by faith. And so, as I've said again and again, you shouldn't leave the church feeling guilty and shame. You should leave the church rejoicing that you have a great Savior. Certainly, you want to amend and change your ways and learn and grow in godliness. And as you learn and grow in godliness and as you mend and change your ways, you ought to go immediately to Jesus Christ, who is the great forgiver of sins and who died as an atonement for your sins. So run to him by faith. But I'm going to answer some questions today, and I'm going to spend at least two weeks, probably three weeks on this commandment. But today I'm going to answer the questions, what is murder? Why is murder sin? How does the sixth commandment govern our hearts? And what is expected of us? What is murder? Why is murder sin? How does the sixth commandment govern our hearts? And what is expected of us? And then, next week, and perhaps the week after, I hope to deal with capital punishment which I think is embedded within this commandment in order to preserve human life and protect the dignity of human life. Self-defense and the defense of loved ones. The biblical doctrine of war, especially, not especially, but included within the biblical doctrine of war, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, which would be justified civil war, and then deal with the doctrine of the love of God and how that applies to us. Because remember, 
The commandment, you shall not murder, as I've indicated, is not just a you shall not, but with embedded in it, is a you shall. So the commandment itself is you shall not murder, but embedded within that commandment is the assumption you shall love. And so I do want to spend some time teasing out the doctrine of the love of God and the various applications of love to the various relationships that you face. But suffice it to say this morning, and I'll say it probably once more in my sermon, is that you don't love everyone the same way. There's distinct applications of love depending on the relationships that you have with people. And so I hope to get into that as I deal with the fifth com or sixth commandment in the weeks ahead. But we will get to capital punishment, self-defense, and the doctrine of war also. But I want to ask the question, I want to start this morning by asking the question, what is murder? What is murder? What is murder? And the Hebrew word, it's translated in other translations. Here it's translated murder, but I think rightfully in the other translations, it's translated kill. And what it means to kill someone or to kill is derived from the Hebrew word, which says, you shall not tear to pieces. You shall not tear to pieces, which indicates the destruction of human life. So it is not upon you to destroy human life. You should not tear to pieces. And I think I need to, especially in this day of age, day, day and age of confusion, I need to clarify that this is not speaking of animal life. There is a distinction between human beings and all other forms of life. And this commandment is telling us that it is human life itself that is to be protected. There's other Bible verses that talk about animal husbandry and the proper care of animal life, and even a biblical idea of conservation. But that is not of which this speaks. This is speaking of human life. You shall not take human life, kill human life. And in fact, other parts of the Bible tell us that the animal life that has been given to us is there for our eating. Amen? So I happen to be an animal lover, especially when it is smoked. Okay? And cured for a while. And it is so tender, it just falls off your fork. But Genesis 9, verse 3 says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. That is a great Bible verse. As I gave you green plants, I give you everything. All right? So, in fact, the Bible speaks elsewhere of Eating meat, in 1 Timothy 4, verse 4, it says, For everything by, created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. 
So the animals of God's green earth are to be eaten and enjoyed under one condition, one, that you eat it with thanksgiving. That's why we pray before our meals. And then Acts chapter 10 tells us that it's a long story here in Acts chapter 10, but this really tells the story of God's gift to us of food, and we should feel no guilt eating, killing and eating animals, killing animals to eat them. I think there's different types of animals and so on, but I need not get into that today, but I'm just trying to distinguish between animal life and human life. Acts chapter 10, verse 9, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry. They wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals, reptiles, and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. So... I trust you are thankful for those commandments in the Bible. So the sixth commandment exclusively forbids the killing of human life. There is a distinction. Societies and civilizations that have been untouched by the Christian gospel have often to be, been known to be cannibalistic societies. In fact, as the evolutionist himself, Charles Darwin, sailed the seas and explored, he is said to have said that he was always thankful to arrive on an island that had been evangelized by missionaries because that meant that the natives of the island wouldn't try to eat him. Christian teaching separates human life from animal life. And the sixth commandment exclusively forbids the taking of human life. Historically in the Bible, Cain was the first murderer. He was the first generation after Adam and Eve, and this demonstrated just how far Adam's race had fallen when Cain turned on his brother and killed his brother Abel. Abel's blood cried out from the earth, testifying to that wicked act of murder. Murder occurred again in Genesis 4 when Lamech, a king, murdered a young man. And in murdering a young man, he said that his vengeance would be greater than the vengeance of the Lord. And not only did he murder the man, not only did he say his vengeance would be greater than the vengeance of the Lord, he murdered a man for insulting him, essentially, and then he boasted about it in song. He was proud of his murder. And this is what's forbidden. Multiple other instances of murder in the Bible, those are just a few on the first pages of the Bible, including the state-sanctioned murder of our Lord Jesus Christ, sanctioned by both Jewish church 
and Roman state was the murder of Jesus. And so nobody is above the law of God, not even the state. Murder, the taking of human life. In Numbers chapter 35, we have the distinction between manslaughter and murder. So they are distinguished. They fall, both of them fall under the heading of the sixth commandment, but they are distinguished from one another. Whereas murder, always, God commands that murder always invokes capital punishment. So the murderer is always to be quickly executed. But manslaughter, we'll find in this text in Numbers chapter 35, brings about house arrest in a city of refuge and then the potential for execution if the person under house arrest tries to escape the city of refuge. So Numbers 35, 16 through 25, you'll see this. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. This is a universal commandment of God. God expects every human civilization to kill murderers. They don't get into that in a few weeks, God willing. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him, lying in wait, so that he died, or an enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck him, the blow shall be put to death. And so there you see the very important category of intent in crime. Now you have the 10th commandment being applied to the 6th commandment. A man coveting another man's life heightens the seriousness of the crime. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him, but manslaughter. If he pushes him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything on him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, Though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer, manslaughter, and the avenger of blood in accordance with these rules. And the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he has fled, and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil." And then it goes on in verse 26 to say that if the manslayer tries to escape house arrest in the city of refuge, then the avenger of blood can execute him. Different sentences for different crimes. Murderers are always to be executed. There is no exceptions. This is the only crime. All the other ones, to my knowledge, in the Ten Commandments where capital punishment is invoked, that is a maximum sentence. With the exception of murder, where it is not considered a maximum sentence, it's considered the only sentence. Murder must be execution. More about that next week. Whereas manslaughterers were put under the house arrest in the city of refuge and could be executed if they attempted to escape the city. Both offenses fall under the sixth commandment, but murder is worse. 
because it is, involves intent to kill, whereas manslaughter, within manslaughter, there is no intent. It's negligence. And often, as we shall see, it's criminal negligence. And I think when there's criminal negligence, the case can be made from the Bible that there should be an execution of the man, the one who commits manslaughter. So I think the case could be made that a drunk driver mows someone down and kills them. The drunk driver should be executed because there's criminal negligence. But if it's an accident, there is a punishment, but it's not as severe as when there involves intent or criminal negligence. But we'll get to that at a later time, some of it more in this sermon. No exceptions. No exceptions to murder always being having to be punished by death and execution. Murder is the destruction of human life. That's what murder is. To tear human life to pieces. That's what murder is. That's to answer your, the question, what is murder? Why is murder a sin is the next question. Why is it a sin? Why is murder a sin? And I can think of three reasons, scripturally speaking, why it's a sin. Number one, God says it is. That's enough for me. Should be enough for you too. Number two, God says in the Bible, the Bible says we all come from Adam. And because we all come from Adam, we in one sense are all brothers and sisters. It's in the human family. Acts 17, verse 26 through 28 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. So it's... Wrong, it's sin because God says it is. It's sin because we all come from the same parents, ultimately, Adam and Eve. And then, I think, the greatest reason that God gives for the sinfulness of murder is that human beings, unlike any other living creature, is created in the image of God. This is significant as far as the biblical plot line goes. We are all created in the image of God. And so Genesis 1, 26 through 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. We're created in... God's image. In Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 and 6, says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning. For the life of man, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So why is murder so serious? Why is it this great crime? Because it is the destruction, not only just of human life, 
but of the only form of life that was created in the image of God. It's an absolutely horrifying and reprehensible crime. Horrifying and reprehensible. The image of God, for us to be created in the image of God, means that we are God's representative. Representatives. So wherever you see a human being, you see somebody, a being, who has been designed by God to represent him. So I'm looking out at all of your faces this morning, and you can see the people in front of you, and you can see me, and whoever you can see was designed especially by God to represent him on this earth. God's representative. You can imagine if there was a king, and the king sent an ambassador off to represent him, and the, and the ambassador was killed. Well, that would be not just an attack on the ambassador, that would be an attack on the king, on his emissary. And you and I are designed by God to be the ambassadors of God. Every human life, every human being is designed by God to be the ambassador of God. And so, when this is not upheld, when the sanctity of human life is not upheld, and there is a murder, it is actually not just an attack on a human being, but it is an attack on God. That's how he counts it. So the word murder, which means tearing life to pieces, that is not just the tearing of human being to pieces, a life to pieces, it is, in effect, tearing God to pieces. Representatively, symbolically. Human life being torn to pieces is symbolically tearing God to pieces. You can describe it this way if you want. If you were to burn the flag of the country, what is that saying about your thoughts on the country? You hate it. It's just a flag. It's just a piece of cloth. But it is displaying your contempt for the nation. Because the flag represents the nation. Each human being represents God. And so tearing human life to pieces is a display of contempt, utter contempt, horrifying contempt to God. All human life, all human beings are afforded dignity and worth. God has endowed every human being with absolute rights because of that dignity and at the very basic sense, the absolute right to life. To life. So what are, as we're getting into this second table of law, the second half of the law here, what we find out is, this, is that they are designed, these laws are designed to protect fundamental rights. Inalienable rights, rights that the government doesn't grant you, rights that God himself has given you. And all of those rights that the government is not to take from you, and in fact God has designed government to protect, are delineated, delineated from the Ten Commandments, especially the second table. Okay? And so 
As we speak of the purpose of government, it is to protect human dignity and protect human dignity by protecting the rights that are delineated in God's law. That's the job of the government, protect human rights. And we have the right to life. And because we have the right to life, the government is not only designed by God to protect our lives, but the government must uphold our own right to protect our lives, which we'll get into later on when it comes to self-defense and just war and so on. So you don't just have a right from God to life. Your right means nothing if you can't protect it. You have a right to God to, from God to protect your life. And as we shall find your marriage and your property and so on. Murder is sin. Why is murder sin? Because God says it is. Why is murder sin? Because we all come from Adam and therefore in one sense we're all brothers and sisters. Why is murder sin? Because we are all created in God's image. And the right to life cannot be secured by secularism. It cannot be secured by bare reason. It cannot be secured by Darwinian evolution. It is only secured by God himself and his image that he has stamped upon us. That is the only way that it can be secured. The right to life is a foundational and irrevocable right for that reason, for that reason. Why is murder sin? Well, I hope I've answered your question. Next question. How should our hearts desire, or what should govern our hearts? How does the sixth commandment govern our hearts? What should our hearts desire? Because at the very bare minimum, the sixth commandment, all of the commandments are designed to start their governance, not in our actions, but in our hearts. And we need, at this point, to revert to principles of application that I mentioned in my earlier sermons, in my introductory sermons. And one of those principles of application is that each com commandment contains a negative and positive commandment. So as Edward Fisher said, where any evil is forbidden, the contrary good is commanded. What is forbidden here? Murder. What is the contrary good? Love. Where murder is forbidden, love is commanded. Edward Fisher also said, it charges the affections to love the things that are to be loved and hate the things that are to be hated. So again, this is talking about the governing of the heart. So, what must I love? Well, I must love what the commandment tells me to do and what the commandment is designed to protect, and I must hate what destroys, that which destroys what the commandment is designed to protect. So I must love human life, and I must hate the destruction of human life and anything that prevents the flourishing of human life. I must love human life and anything 
that hinders the flourishing of human life. I must hate and I must love everything that encourages the flourishing of human life. This is the affections of the heart, and the commandments are to govern them. If we are not to murder any person, then we are to love each person. It does not mean that we love each person the same, as I've said already, and I will talk about at a future time. But it does mean that we are to love each person. So Leviticus 19, verse 17 through 18 says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, people get to the teachings of Jesus and they're like, oh, look, the teachings of Jesus are new. No, Jesus taught exactly what the law said. He upheld the law in his teaching. And what does he teach? He teaches Leviticus 19, verse 18, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is the second greatest commandment. And then Matthew 5, verse 44 through 45, Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So what are we supposed to do? You're not just supposed to love the people that are easy to love. You're supposed to love everybody, including your enemies. And then in Matthew 7, Verse 12, Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. What's that? You love people. You treat others the way you want to be treated. This is very important stuff. This is basic Christianity. This is basic Christian living. Is learning to love other people and care for them and desire their good, not just with your actions, but from your heart. From your heart. Where there is love, there is the absence of hate. And so you see this come through in 1 John 3, verse 15, where it says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. You see this? The prohibition to murder is so serious that if you are a murderer, and if your heart is full of hatred, it's an indication that you're not a Christian. You're not born again. If your heart is full of hatred... It is evidence that you are not truly converted. You might think you're converted. Your mom and dad might think you're converted. The people in the church might think you're converted. But if you are harboring hatred in your heart, it is indicative of the truth that you're not converted. It's that serious. John goes on to say in 1 John 4, verse 7 through 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So if you're harboring hatred in your heart, it's, it's indication that you're not saved. If there's an absence of love in your heart, it's also an indication that you're not saved. John's very strong on that. You don't have the second birth, John says, in essence. If your heart is full of hatred and your heart doesn't have love in it. And this is all coming from what commandment? 
the sixth. It's all coming from the sixth commandment. Jesus takes this to the extent of forbidding sinful anger towards our brothers. And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 21 through 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. So what's he doing? Well, he's preaching the sixth commandment. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And then in verse 22, what's he say? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So you hear me say the sixth commandment should bring about the death penalty, and you say that's harsh. Jesus says if you call your brother a fool, you're going to go to hell. He heightens it because he's expositing the principle that lies behind the sixth commandment. So this is alarming. And I hope that this is informative for you, and I hope that it's convicting. And I hope that right now as I'm sharing this and I'm reading the Word of God and preaching it, I hope that you're searching your heart right now to root out bitterness and hatred and contempt for other people and to replace that with love. And if you say, I can't replace that with love, then that's an indication that you don't know God because God is love. And if you have received the love of God, then that love will flow out of you. And this sermon won't be a problem for you. But if you are full of bitterness, that tells me that you do not know God. Full of hatred, that tells me that you do not know God. At the sight of human life, you should rejoice, your heart should skip to see human life, and especially human life that is flourishing. Our hearts must be full of love for human beings, and the presence of love means the absence of hate and certainly murder. You know, the, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, is just one way to not love your neighbor, or to love your neighbor, rather. So one of the ways that you love your neighbor is you don't murder your neighbor. But that is like the easiest way to love your neighbor, typically. But the, the implicit in the commandment is the commandment to love. And that's what brings me to my final point when I start talking about the actions that are expected and forbidden. What is expected and forbidden in this commandment? If our hearts are to be hearts of love with the absence of hate, what is expected and what is forbidden in this commandment? If love is in our hearts, it will lead to certain actions. Let me give you a few quotes here to help explain the principle involved. John Gill said, Men should do all they can for the ease, peace, and preservation of the lives of men. That's love. You see the effort that's involved in loving? I think too many people think, well, love just means I'm not trying to hurt somebody. I'm not, that's, you know, well, I must love my neighbor. I'm not trying to hurt him. No, but love means you're actually doing something for the ease, peace, and preservation of life. And then Matthew Henry said, Thou shalt not do anything hurtful or injurious to the health, ease, and life of thy own body or any other person's unjustly. And so the principle of the sixth commandment doesn't just apply to your neighbors, but it applies to yourself. 
You're supposed to treat your own life as if it is something that is to be treated with dignity and respect, your own body and your own soul. Your own body and your own soul are to be treated with dignity and respect and properly cared for in obedience to the Sixth Commandment. And, and let me give you just a couple more quotes to even push this point further. As it pertains to yourself, this means taking care of your body and not doing anything harmful to it. Wilhelm S. A. Brackle goes into this and he said, this also pertains to overindulgence in eating and drinking of alcoholic beverages, excessive sleeping, or by withholding the body of what it needs by withholding food and shelter. Gluttony, bad eating habits, bad sleeping habits, drunkenness, and illicit drugs are all forbidden by the Sixth Commandment. As learning, I was speaking with someone yesterday who's a trained psychologist, and I was asking some questions about trends and what's going on in, in that particular realm. And he said that it's going to become commonplace soon within psychology to prescribe people psychedelic drugs in order to help with their mental health. So you know that stuff that was forbidden in school? Well, no, this is, I mean, it's science. Trust the science. What are you putting into your body? I didn't ask what the doctor told you to put in your body. I asked you what you're putting into your body. Is it harmful or helpful to your health? Is a question you have to ask. Wilhelm S. A. Brackle went on and he says, if one has an adequate supply, speaking of food, he must nevertheless neither be idle nor fatten himself as a swine. Taking care of one's own health, exercising, measuring what goes into your mouth, off acting in moderation as it pertains to your own eating habits, is an application and necessary application of the Sixth Commandment. Absolutely necessary application of the Sixth Commandment. Homemakers have this responsibility to feed their families nutritious meals, and parents should be teaching their children to govern their appetites. If you don't teach your children to govern their appetites for food, how will you teach them to govern their appetites for sexual intimacy? Exercising restraint in one area, unnecessary, leads to exercising restraint in another area. And is a further application to how you treat yourself and your own body. I have preached against suicide, and it's worth mentioning again that suicide is self-murder. It is a shameful way to die. It is a selfish way to die. It is a cowardly way to die. And it is a disgrace to this society that it is seen as a heroic way to die. 
whereby the at last act of the will is an act of murder. And those who do it are perceived and said to be victims. Couldn't help it. Couldn't help but commit murder. This whole idea of medical assistance in dying is an absolutely horrifying disgrace. I've had people in this church describe to me they've seen it happen to their neighbors. The neighbor calls, white van shows up to the house, medical professionals go into the house and inject a substance into the person's body and take the person out in a stretcher into the white van. That's reminiscent of what they did in Nazi Germany. I remember when this whole thing came to be, I went to a public forum in Cambridge, and the, the politician uh, who represented federally, federally represented Cambridge was there, and he was soliciting input from the people. I don't think he really cared one way or another, just judging by what's happened since and by his own demeanor. But an old doctor stood up, and the old doctor said, he was an elderly doctor, he said he never had one of his patients ever request to be suicided because he cared for them properly. And then he went on to say, the last generation that saw government-sanctioned death carried out by the hands of doctors was hanged at Nuremberg. Don't forget it. The law that murder deserves capital punishment is a universal law, regardless of what our government says. And if there ever is a righteous government in this country, they will be right to prosecute murderers and hang them. Abortion is the murder of an innocent child at the hands of a mother and her doctor. It is a horrifying crime. And the ground of this country is soaked with the blood of the unborn, drenched with it. Whereby the children are, the blood of the children is crying out to condemn. Two or three generations now that have been murdered or that have murdered their own. What an evil and violent act for a mother to request that a doctor execute her own child in the safest place where it should be, in her womb. Or for a man, for a few minutes of pleasure to pressure her to go to a so-called doctor to have his child executed when it is his God-given duty to protect his family. What an evil and horrifying generation we live in. And that this is considered a third rail of politics is in and of itself an indictment upon this nation where federal and provincial politicians are terrified to touch it. It's an indictment on all of us. And it's an indictment 
and our governing authorities. So yes, murder is seen as an evil in our society to a degree, but as I've said on both ends of life, at the beginning of life and at the end of life, it is increasingly being seen as a virtue. So if they can murder the old and they can murder the young, why can't they murder you? Nobody is safe unless we uphold the dignity and sanctity of human life. Consciences are calloused and seared as generations have considered abortion and now medical assistance in dying is a human right. And where did I tell you human rights come from? The Ten Commandments. What an act of blasphemy that is. What a disgraceful, horrifying act of blasphemy. Maybe you're here today and you've participated in one of these acts and your hands are covered in blood. And you're under conviction right now. I've heard the statistics are very high as to how many have carried out these wicked deeds, these horrifying crimes against God. I exhort you in the name of God to run to Jesus for forgiveness. Quickly, go to him. He is a merciful Savior. He is a loving Savior who died, yes, died, even for murderers. Even for murderers. Seeking revenge is forbidden in this commandment. Romans chapter 12 tells us in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Revenge is a lack of faith in the God who avenges. It's saying, when you seek revenge, it's saying, I don't trust God. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Not rescuing someone who you have the power to rescue is an act of, is, is, is a violation of the sixth commandment. Pilate was guilty. Why? Because he was passively involved in the murder of Jesus Christ. The good Samaritan was commended for what? For actively rescuing someone. The religious leaders in the parable of the good Samaritan were condemned for what? What were they condemned for? They were condemned for passively watch someone on the roadside. Serious business. Owners of animals must kill animals when they show themselves to be dangerous. This is an application of the fifth commandment. So Exodus 21, verse 28 through 29 says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned, but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. Dog that bites someone should be killed. And if a dog bites someone and it's not killed, and then the dog strikes again, it's on the owner. And now that owner is liable before God. And if there was a just government, would be liable before the just government. Destroying the means of existence is an act of murder. 
violation of the sixth commandment. You destroy someone's means of existence, they can't exist. Our government destroyed the means of the existence of the people during the COVID era, and the churches were complicit in it, in violation of the sixth commandment. Slander is a murderous act. The Pharisees slandered Jesus, and what did that lead to? It led to his murder. Telling the truth maliciously is a murderous act. What did Judas do? He betrayed our Lord by what? By telling the truth maliciously and was thereby complicit in his murder. You know, Judas, Judas could have just said, well, I just told the truth. They asked where he was, and I said where he was. Well, he's complicit in the murder of Christ by telling the truth in a malicious way. Not warning of people of danger is a murderous act when you see it present. And so I've gone through all of this now, my points. I've asked the question, what is murder? Why is murder sin? What should our hearts desire? And what is expected and what is forbidden? And if you really want to boil it down, let's just be frank. All sin is an act of murder. All sin. Because it either contributes to the destruction of another human life by taking away their ease of existence, or and are contributes to your own destruction by putting your soul in danger. Self-murder. All sin is a violation of the sixth commandment. There's not a sin that's accepted. All sin. And so I look out at a room of murderers, and you're looking back at a murderer. Every one of us has blood on our hands, because every one of our sins have either taken away from somebody's life, taken away from their ease of existence, and or jeopardized our own souls. Every one of us. And this is why we need the blood of Christ. We need our Lord Jesus. Oh, how we need our Lord Jesus. And we need to heed the words that I say at the beginning of these sermons on the Ten Commandments, that when we come under the conviction for our sin, that our first act is to run to him for mercy. Because he is a kind Savior who promises to receive us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would bless your people, that you would sanctify us, that we would be full of your spirit and love, and that you would teach us to love our neighbors and even our enemies, and that we would be looking, ever looking, we do ever look to our Lord Jesus, who is so merciful to us wretches, murderers, sinners, who depend and live in the grace of God and have been atoned for by the blood of his cross. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.